Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. property, a house, boat, houseboat, collection of matchbooks, or maybe you just inherited a mess. (laughs) Whatever it was that you inherited, it was given to you because of who you are. Someone in your family left it to you, whether whether it's because they loved you or they hated you. (laughs) Depends on how big the mess is, right? But you inherited what you inherited because of who you are. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, Peter starts talking about an inheritance that we as Christians now have, that it's something that belongs to us because of our identity, because of who we are in Christ. And today we're going to take a look at that text. But let's go ahead and have a word of prayer before we dive in, uh, and then we'll examine what it says. So bow with me, please. Dear Father God, thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the theology that is there, for the depths of truth that are in your revelation to us through so many different wonderful authors throughout history. And Father, we pray that as we examine your holy words, that we would understand them well, that they would be written upon our minds, that they would permeate our hearts, that it would change who we are By the power of your spirit, Father, may your truth do that in us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Last week we talked about being born again how Christ gives us new birth and new life. But Peter doesn't stop uh, his thought there with new birth. He says that when we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus, we are born into an inheritance. Well, first, what is this inheritance? Why does Peter choose to refer to it as such? And finally, how does he describe the inheritance? First, the inheritance. What is it? What is it that we will inherit as people born again, as Christians? We will inherit forgiveness, life, hope, and not just these things in this life, but in the life that is coming after this one. The overwhelming idea that Peter's trying to convey is that we have a share in something that is already and is not yet. We are inheritors of a share of the heavenly kingdom and a heavenly reward. A kingdom that is, but isn't fully yet. We are promised to receive a a portion in a new creation. And all the blessings that will be a part of it. We are promised eternal life, a resurrection, and a place in the new creation. Scripture tells us that the old is passing away. 
and will pass away. And that we, along with creation itself, will be made new. What does this new creation, this inheritance that we will receive look like, though? To be honest with you, we're not entirely sure. Much of it will be a surprise to us. But what we are told uh, in Scripture uh, are these brief little glimpses of what it's like. Not what it is, but what it's like. That's a very important distinction. Unfortunately, people often think that literally the streets are going to be made out of gold in the new creation. No, it's John doing his best to describe what he's seeing. He says, it's like that. It's really interesting. John gives us really the most glimpses of the world that's coming, the new life that's coming out of really anybody in Scripture. John, who loved Jesus dearly and who was really described as one who was close and closest to Jesus, he reveals to us a little picture of what he saw, of what was revealed to him. One of the titles that we assign to John is John the Revelator. Revelation. Revelation is the book of the Bible where John is shown a glimpse of heaven, where he's shown a glimpse of the world, the life, the creation that's coming, but most importantly, of him who rules over it. It is literally the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so John, dearly beloved of Jesus, friend, he describes some things. And he describes what is coming that, quite honestly, he struggles with. He, he tries to find images to connect with us. He tries to find metaphors and similes. He tries to build these images of, it was like this. I wish you could have seen it. Because I'm lacking the words to really tell you about it. And it's so very true because the words that are so lacking are so much more so in a world that's full of sin and sickness and injustice and death. In Revelation 21.1, John says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, that the old passed away. He records just a few verses later that there is a new Jerusalem, that there is a holy city wherein those who are, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will dwell. It's a place of peace and paradise where the Garden of Eden is restored, including most prominently, the tree of life. What John bears witness to is beyond even his eloquent descriptions. And that's a really important thing for us to know because this is John, one of the most eloquent writers, in my opinion, of all time. If you look at the prologue of John, the Gospel of John, there is nothing to compare with it. He is one of the best writers of all time, and even he fails to find adequate words to describe the revelation of Jesus Christ and that which Jesus has gone before us to prepare. And he says, it was like this, or it was like that. John uses the word like almost 70 times in just 404 verses. That's a lot of like, folks. That's a lot of like. That's like... A movie from the 90s about teenage girls who said like every two words. 
He has an extensive vocabulary. John does. He's extraordinarily intelligent and well-spoken. His, vo his vocabulary, his mastery of his language are evident in everything that he writes. This is the man who writes, in the beginning was the word. Some of the most important and thought over words in all of scripture. I'm sure you're familiar with it. We've talked about it many times before. It's powerful stuff. And yet this very verbose man struggles to describe what he sees in the new creation. That tells me one thing, that what he saw is amazing. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Beyond description, beyond compare, there is nothing in our world like what John saw. Perhaps the most eminently interesting details of the new creation that John describes is the list of no mores. John writes that there will be no more tears because God will wipe them away. That there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. There will be no more separation. Our God will dwell with us and we will be his people. That's our inheritance. But why does Peter call it an inheritance? Peter calls it an inheritance for a very good reason, because by way of our new birth, it is bestowed upon us and gifted to us. It is not a reward that we have earned or a prize that we have merited by our good performance. It is a gift from God. That's so very important for us to understand, especially to grasp that we don't deserve an inheritance. We don't deserve forgiveness. Yet God gives us both. He forgives us our sin and then gives us another gift. Guys, that's amazing. I don't know about you, but when somebody wrongs me, it's hard enough for me just to forgive them. I don't want to give them anything. It's like, oh, I forgive you. Here's my car. What? That's the goodness of God that he forgives, he gives grace, he shows mercy, and then he gives gifts. God is so very different than we are. There's a story that always comes to mind when I think of the word inheritance. It's the story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, verse 11 through 32, there's a parable that Jesus told. And it's recorded... a in this story about a man who had two sons, the younger of which asked for his share of the property, his inheritance, his possession by virtue of birth. And the father gives his youngest this gift out of his love for him, not because the father owes the son anything. In fact, when we read the whole parable, we see that not only does the father not owe the son anything, but the son is guilty of sinning greatly against his father. The son not only takes the inheritance, that which the father has worked so hard to build and create for his son, and his son goes and squanders the wealth and dishonors his father. The son has no right to be called this man's son. He is wretched. Yet when he comes before his father to confess and ask forgiveness, his father shows him great love and compassion. The text says that when he returns, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and ran to him. And he had his servants put the best robe on him and a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Guys, those are important details. Each of those is very important. A ring and a robe and sandals. These are signs that you are not a slave. You are not a servant. You are one of my household. You are my son. You are my inheritor. You are mine. The son is brought back into the family and into the inheritance because the father says, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. When we are born again into a family and the inheritance that God has prepared for us, that's like that story. We're not granted it because we've merited it or earned it. It is the gift of a good and gracious God. But it's not an inheritance like the ones that we're so used to. We're used to inheriting messes. We're used to inheriting stuff that rots and crumbles and tatters and tears and even that gets spent and sometimes squandered. Our inheritance as Christians, as people who are born again, is described as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter makes very clear the inheritance you're receiving, it's not stuff. Peter says this inheritance isn't stuff and it can't be destroyed. It is eternal and God himself keeps it in heaven for you. How blessed that assurance must have been to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century. How much hope that must have conveyed to them as they watched things crumble all around them. They watched things rot. They watched people suffer as they just tried to make ends meet and they wondered Is there any hope? Peter says, yes, there's hope. Because our hope, our inheritance is built on the one who gives us new life. And upon the fact that he himself keeps our inheritance in heaven for us. Where no one, no thief, no spoiled child, no government, no evil emperor can take it. But Peter goes even further. He says, Our brothers and sisters in Christ who undoubtedly were afraid of persecution and anxious about the future, and especially the future of their salvation, Peter says you are guarded by God's power. The word in the Greek that's translated as guarded is most often translated in connection and in context with the military. It means kept safe, carefully watched, preserved, and protected. God continually protects those who are born again. He is responsible for their preservation. Yet Peter also says that this is through faith. That God saves us and preserves us through faith. We don't save ourselves. God saves us through faith. But even that faith is a gift from God. So that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Personal human accountability and divine providential foreknowledge. Living in paradox. 
And I'm going to struggle with that paradox my whole life because my little brain can't wrap around those two things. But I know they're true because God has revealed it. He has shown this holy mystery to us over and over and over throughout history, throughout the text of the Bible. And it is a holy mystery that is great and glorious how God could love a sinful creation who betrays him and denies him and hates him at every turn enough that he himself would die to save them. Praise God for that. Because none of us deserve that kind of love. None of us can boast about anything we've done or that could ever pay our debt before Almighty God. Even Paul himself, one of the most religious, most devout holy men that has ever lived, could not boast in his own deeds and accomplishments before the eternal God of creation. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Paul says, I can't boast. Far be it from me to boast in anything except one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus. The only thing I can boast in is that my Lord, my God, came and did what I cannot do. He was holy and righteous and perfect, so much so that when he dies on the cross, he is the spotless lamb. That is a sacrifice for my sin. That is the only thing I can boast in. That coming from Paul, who sat at the feet of one of the most well-known rabbis in all of history, one of the most brilliant men and teachers to ever live, Paul who traveled thousands of miles. Paul who who knew multiple languages. Paul who, who knew multiple cultures. Paul who went around and helped establish churches. Paul who helped to solidify the growth of the church. Paul who's one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Paul who's one of the greatest theologians of all time. And still he says, I can't boast. There is nothing I have to boast in. My friends, as Christians, we are certainly commanded to speak truth to our world. Painful truth that will on many occasions win us no friends as we tell them the truth of their sin. But always in our truth telling, always in our evangelizing, it must be remembered that we do not speak as those who are sinless, but as those who are sinners, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I tell you the truth this morning. If you are here today, it is for a reason. Because God wanted you to see and hear his word. He wanted you to know the truth of the gospel. I believe God at his word when he says that he is drawing all men unto himself that they may repent and believe. And that is my challenge to you. Repent and believe. 
repent because you, like me, are a sinner. You, like me, have wronged God. And this is a true message not just for those who are not yet Christians, but for those who are Christians. We are to continue to repent, to turn from our sin, to continually work in such a way to be obedient to the word of God, to live holy lives before him. We are not saved by our holiness, but we are saved to grow in it. And this truth, when we recognize it, that we've wronged God, it hits us like bricks. David writes in Psalm 51, from a deep place of anguish in his soul, when he recognizes his sin, this is what repentance looks like. It says, Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So many people, they want to judge Scripture and say, who are you to judge me? God's word is binding on us, whether you believe it or not. God is righteous in his judgment. God is righteous in his assessment of our sinful state. David makes very clear that God is in that God is eternally justified in his judgment. And he makes clear as well, all sin, all sin, even though it may be directed towards other people, that it's ultimately sin against God. Because we have violated his word, his will, and his way. We have done evil and failed to do good. So God is fully justified in condemning each and every one of us. To hell. But herein lies the good news. Even though each of us deserves to go to hell, God makes a way that we may not. Praise God for that type of abounding love that's greater than all of our sin. And it is greater than all of our sin. This is such a very important point for you to understand. It does not matter what you have done. We think we're so humble sometimes as Christians when we come and we say, God could never forgive me. He could never forgive sins like what I've done. You don't know what I've done. No, but I know my God. I know the one who went to the cross and his perfection, his righteousness, his love is greater than all of our sin combined. Our eternal God, our creator, his love for us is so abounding, so great, that he comes into human form. We call this incarnation. So that he can die in our place, taking the punishment upon himself for our sin. Peter himself is later going to write this in 1 Peter chapter 2.24. says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus our sacrifice once and for all for all of our sins dies and cleanses believers of all unrighteousness. Christ saves And Peter says that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. We need to understand this about our salvation. That it is already, but not yet. In the same way that our inheritance is already, but not yet. We are saved, but we're also being saved every single day. Our salvation is not yet fully revealed, but oh, do we look forward to the day that it is with anticipation. When our faith will be made sight. Paul describes it beautifully that we will no longer live by faith in that time. That we will be face to face with our creator. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful way of putting it because there's not many people that you know well enough to come face to face with. There's not many people that lets you get that close. And that's how close the creator and the creation will be. And when I think about it, there's great anticipation and great assurance, great hope, but also a little bit of fear of standing before my God. What Peter says that we are covered in Christ's righteousness. That we have no need of that type of terror of standing within the sight of God because we are covered by Christ's righteousness. And so we can anticipate this face-to-face of standing in his presence with great assurance. Not because of ourselves, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. Because of his precious blood that's poured out for my treasonous blood. Because I am redeemed by his work. And I trust that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is God. And that he not only did what he said he would do, but that he will also do what he says he will do. Today, my friends, I call you to believe the same. Today, I tell you the truth. Believe and repent. Respond to the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Having faith in him alone. Now is the time. If you need to make that proclamation of faith today, we're going to have a time of invitation. And we're going to sing, praising our God for the good news, the gospel. And if you're ready to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, to accept his forgiveness, this is the day. Don't wait. If you need to do that, why don't you come forward as we stand. Thanks for joining us for the message today. 
If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.